0: At 1,400 miles long, Australia's Great Barrier Reef is host to hundreds of different species of corals and marine life. But in 2016, scientists began noticing that huge swaths of its rainbow-colored reefs were turning bone white. In 2016 and 2017, the Washington Post reports, 900 miles of the reef experienced coral bleaching at some point. Bleaching is caused by climate change and leads to mass coral death. What occurred at the Great Barrier Reef is happening to coral reefs worldwide. So, we thought we would look into this situation on Please Explain. And we are joined now by Jeff Orlowski, whose documentary Chasing Coral is currently on Netflix, and also by Ruth Gates, the director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. And she's uh, one of the people featured in the film. Welcome to our show. Thank,
1: Thank you very you so much, I Appreciate it.
0: And we uh, invite our listener calls during these segments. If you have a question about how coral works or why it's bleaching or uh, anything else that uh, might be of interest, give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org slash Lopate. Ruth, how much of the ocean is made up of coral reefs?
1: Well, a very low percentage. I mean, it's it's uh, you know in the in the ones and two percent of the world is actually a coral reef, which is a really low amount of space. Given that about twenty five percent of all the things that live in the ocean spend some time on a coral reef, so that's a really kind of amazing feature of the reef. It it creates very complex space for many things to live in.
0: How does a reef form?
1: reef is actually created by these tiny animals that are called corals. They're very ancient organisms that have this unique ability to deposit a skeleton, much like our skeleton. Um, it creates structure. And there are a lot of different types of corals, and each of the corals creates a shape that is fairly unique the type of coral that it is. And so when you look at a coral reef, what you're seeing is a lot of shapes and sizes of corals that represent many different species that assemble to create the structure that we call a coral reef. And that structure in some cases can be seen from space. But all of that is engineered by a very tiny, seemingly simple organism called a coral.
0: These invertebrates that... Uh, It's an incredible amount of variety that we see in this film, not just in shapes, but also in colors. And many of them are quite beautiful, although I don't know whether the corals, is there a reason that the corals are such, have such glorious colors? Is that to attract the fish?
1: I think it's to attract the fish, but there's a you know perhaps a more functional role for those colours and and we think that those um proteins that that produce the colour are actually produced by the animal to really optimize the light field that it sees. And it needs to do that because it really partners very intimately with a tiny plant that lives inside of its tissues that powers the entire reef. And essentially corals have a food factory living inside of them. And those plants need a very specific wavelength of light to do what they do. And so we think the coral has something to do with that. Um, And in some cases, we see when a coral is damaged, that it is extraordinarily colorful, and we see that in the film very clearly. And frankly, we don't know very much about that particular color pattern.
0: How did they eat? How do they eat? They have tentacles. So
1: a colony, an individual, is made up of hundreds, if not thousands, of tiny polyps that essentially are a mouse with a ring of tentacles around the mouth and those tentacles can expand and they can capture things from the outside um, as well as use these tiny plants inside of themselves. These, these algae that live inside their tissues do what all plants do. They can essentially use sunlight energy to combine water and carbon dioxide into a food molecule. And the animal then uses that food molecule from the plant to feed internally. It's pretty clever.
0: And what's their typical lifespan?
1: Oh, it's a great question. You know, we always say that coral reefs don't have, or corals don't have a lifespan. They are... Everlasting organisms that can live for hundreds of years and, you know, actually, I suspect that we would be very happy if we could do the same thing. Um, You know, but of course, they die because they, they get killed. They can be eaten by some things or, as happened in this film, they can see conditions that essentially are outside their wheelhouse and those conditions can kill them. Um, And so while they have the potential to live for an extraordinarily long
2: time, they often do not.
0: Jeff, when did scientists first notice the coral bleaching?
2: Um, Well, uh, Ruth would probably answer the historical side of it a little bit better. I mean, the first reported major cases were in the early 80s. Is that right, Ruth?
1: That's exactly right. And so, I mean, I think there were sort of uh, people mentioning whitening corals, you know, as early as, as the 60s, but becoming intent, intent, you know, more uh, frequent descriptions into the 80s. And then the first global bleaching event happened in 1998.
0: And uh, a biologist named Ove Ho Goldberg uh, said that climate change was contributing to the bleaching in the 90s. What kind of uh, response did that get?
1: People were, you know, people were sort of not really in the same position as he was at that time. I think people felt there were other explanations for it. Although, you know, the science was pretty clear that if you elevate temperature that corals don't like it and they'll bleach. They they live very close to their thermal threshold. And so, you know, the evidence supported his argument, but I think that people really weren't that clear that climate change was acting in our time. And I think that's the problem that... Uh, we still face, that people don't understand that we are in the midst of climate change right now and seeing the effects of it in extraordinary ways. And the coral bleaching is is one of these extraordinary events, And, and how ext- is it not a normal phenomenon.
0: How extensive was the first global bleaching event?
1: It was very extensive. The estimates are that we lost about 18% of the world's reefs um, in that one event.
0: And now we've lost, uh, over the last 30 years, how much? 50%?
1: That's right. That's the estimate now. Is that we've lost 50% of the world's reef with approximately 20% dying in the global bleaching event that has just finished um, last year. So these are really big numbers that we're talking about. And and the unfortunate reality is that the space between bleaching events. There was one in 1998, another in a much more mild one in, in 2010, and now one in 2015, 16 into early 2017. You can see that the gap between them is getting um, smaller. And that, of course, doesn't give the coral reef any time to recover. Um, And that that is really the thing that is, is extraordinarily worrying now.
0: My guests on today's Please Explain are Ruth Gates, the director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and filmmaker Jeff Orlowski, whose documentary Chasing Coral is currently on Netflix. This is WNYC, WNYC WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Jeff, your 2012 documentary Chasing Ice was about the effects of climate change on ice. Uh, Did that lead you to this subject?
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, when we were working on Chasing Ice, that was, uh, it was a very new story for me at the time, seeing how visceral the changes were happening to Arctic landscapes. And after that film was released, uh, we met a, a number of people working on different ecosystems and how different ecosystems are changing right now. And when we met Richard Beaver Beavers, one of the subjects in Chasing Coral, that that's what put us down a path to start exploring what was happening to coral reefs globally. And so this is really, if you don't if you don't see the ocean story, if you don't see the coral story, then you don't really have a full grasp in my mind of the climate change story. This is the front line right now of, of what's happening to the planet. It's happening to the oceans.
0: Although I'd imagine uh, telling this story present a lot more challenges for a filmmaker than telling <laughs> the story of Arctic ice.
2: Um, shooting in the Arctic is incredibly tough because of the cold, harsh conditions, but shooting in the ocean is tough just because you've got saltwater everywhere. And um, obviously, there have been uh, some amazing ocean-related and underwater-related film productions for many, many years. So uh, the equipment has has been very refined over those decades. Um, So we came in off of uh, great knowledge and great expertise of what kind of equipment to use and how to to do this stuff. Um, That said, to try to capture what we were hoping to capture, as Ruth is explaining the coral bleaching and these changes that happen to the reefs, we did have to sort of invent some new technology um, that we found collaborators and partners to help with to be able to design and build camera systems that could live in the ocean for months on end, that could shoot hopefully every day multiple times to capture the changes happening to a reef. And, um, and the film itself is very much the documentation of that quest it's a human adventure story to try to capture and reveal what's happening to these reefs.
0: Did uh, Richard Verveer, uh is that how we pronounce his name? Who is an underwater yeah. photographer, uh, but also has a background in marketing, did he reach out to you with the idea yeah. of making a film? Yeah,
2: he did, and uh, Richard's background was in advertising and marketing and communications, and uh, when we first met the biggest takeaway that he had was that this is really just a communications problem. The scientists know what's going on. We have the evidence. We have the knowledge. We we know what has happened in the past, and we know what the trends imply looking forward. And yet there's this huge gap between what the scientific community knows and what the general public knows. And when Richard described it, you know, it's, it's a communications challenge first and foremost. Um, that's where we felt like we could help and collaborate uh, work with the scientists to try to be um, sort of a a translator for the scientists and uh, ruth needs no translation whatsoever ruth is an amazing amazing communicator and for us it was really trying to use film as an opportunity to capture these stories from scientists all around the world and from divers all around the world and be able to present it in one cohesive story of what we see what we see happening uh, beneath the surface
0: didn't Richard Rivers, uh work on a project that's like Google Street View, but only underwater? Yeah,
2: yeah. So that was what Richard did right before we we had met. Um, he and his team at the Ocean Agency had created this camera that can do underwater 360 degree imagery. So right now you can go, people are very familiar with Google Street View where you can see you know, what your house looks like or what some address looks like. You can actually do the same thing underwater at reefs all around the world. So you can do a virtual dive on the Great Barrier Reef right now or in Hawaii or in Florida and you can see imagery that, that Richard shot um, with his team All across the planet. It it really has been one of the largest documentations, like a baseline documentation of the state of coral reefs globally um, when those images were shot. And we're seeing that's part of the the visual evidence documenting how much change we've seen over
0: time. Although it didn't go as smoothly as you would like in some cases, you had a problem uh, with some cameras that slowly went out of focus while they were underwater.
2: Yeah, so um, in the film, as you're referencing, we, we were trying to build this new equipment uh, to capture the bleaching, to do those time lapses of bleaching. And we had um, many complications to say the least. Uh, this, is, this sort of project, the way we handled it, um, building a team to try to capture this and visualize it, um, there were a lot of firsts for us and, and for the community um, trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. Um, so we we worked on building this specialty equipment. One of the biggest challenges is how do you keep a camera lens clean when it's underwater for long periods of time? Because anything in the ocean, any clean surface in the ocean, starts getting life growing on it very very quickly. And we found a company that had a camera system that had a basically it's a windshield wiper that can pivot around a glass dome, and this windshield wiper spins on a regular schedule and keeps the glass clean. And that was a really key part of the equipment to be able to make this work. We did have other complications and challenges along the way, and that, that really is kind of the the middle section of the film. Is, documenting those challenges trying to figure out how we could overcome them and I don't want to spoil too much but it, it ended up being a, a bit of a big pivot for us in the filmmaking in the process.
0: Ruth you mentioned that it's when the water heats up that the problems occur what happens why does that affect the coral and what happens inside of a coral that leads it to bleach?
1: So essentially, what happens is the the algae or the plants that live inside the tissue are very sensitive to temperature themselves, and the process that allows them to produce food, this is photosynthesis, um, becomes impaired uh, at these higher temperatures, and and then it becomes. Um, instead of feeding the animal, this becomes a toxic nightmare for the animal because it has something inside of it that is essentially not functioning and poisoning it. And so the animal boots these tiny plant cells out. And actually the animal tissue is totally transparent. Um, And what you're seeing with the color of coral is the color of these millions of algal cells inside their tissues that are themselves on top of the white skeleton. So they boot out the algae. Now the tissue pale and you begin to see the white skeleton the skeleton through the transparent animal tissue and that is the 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 process of car
0: bleaching and so how long does that that normally take
1: you know it can be very very quick if the temperature rises very fast or it can be a a slower process so it can take days to weeks Um, And, you know, we estimate by the time we actually see the coral pale, that they've lost about 80% of the cells, the algal cells in their tissues. So, you know, they've gone from millions to thousands. And so, um, and, you know, that really impairs, you know, when you lose your primary food source, of course, then the animal starts to starve. And um, it's a race against time now as to whether or not Conditions will come back into the range in which corals function, and that animal will then regain its algae and survive. Or if conditions remain outside the norm, the animal will often die.
0: What happens to the fish that live within the coral when the reefs are bleaching?
1: You know, they like to live inside of living corals. And so the fish will move. And what happens when the coral dies then is the skeleton starts to be eroded by both the chemistry and the wave energy, but also by things that bore into the skeletons. And so the skeleton will then collapse. Um, the entire reef, if the entire reef dies, will get covered in this sort of fuzzy microalgae, these, these plants that just sort of take over the space. And that whole field then becomes denuded of life. And so, you know, this is the major worry that we don't, you know, corals are essentially the trees of the forest, right? You take away the trees, you have nowhere for the things that inhabit the trees to live. And, and you know, given that 25% of of marine life lives at some time on a coral reef, that loss of structure and, and a place to live has devastating consequences.
0: And, Jeff, in the film you suggested has an economic impact on the people who fish for the species that live in the reefs.
2: Uh, yeah, this is... In many ways, this is such a bigger story than just coral themselves, as ruth is is indicating it 's a key it 's a keystone species within the the ocean system and it 's also an important part for humans. humans depend on coral reefs for so many different factors um, There are different estimates anywhere from half a billion to a billion people rely on the food the protein the fish coming out of a coral reef for their own for their own survival. This is a main source of protein for many, many people. Um, And that has huge implications on health and on the economy for those areas.
0: I'm speaking with Jeff Orlowski, whose documentary, Chasing Coral, is uh, currently available on Netflix. And Ruth Gates, a scientist who appears in the film, she's the director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We are going to take a little break, and then we will come back with more. We invite your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. And we are back with documentary filmmaker Jeff Roloski, whose uh, latest film is Chasing Coral, and it's available on Netflix, also with Ruth Gates, a scientist who appears in the film and uh, is the director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, Ruth, uh, is there a big coral reef uh, near Hawaii, or is Florida the place we should be most concerned about?
1: No, there's a huge coral reef in Hawaii. And so the entire Hawaiian archipelago is a, a very large reef system. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm here, because we can do research here uh, on the reefs that are directly adjacent to, to our institute. And so, you know, Florida, Hawaii, these there are reefs all over the world. And, and frankly, all of them are threatened by climate change.
0: Now, why are the oceans heating up?
1: Well, that's a, a really great question. We've, we have, you know, climate change that is, you know, now associated with massive burning of fossil fuel and the way in which the carbon dioxide is trapped in our atmosphere and now um, traps heat that is warming the entire planet, and a lot of that heat, you know, over 90% is essentially being absorbed by the ocean. And so what's happening is the ocean is warming up, and you can tangibly measure that. Um, And it's making extreme warm temperatures more extreme. So the highs are higher, and in some cases, the lows are lower. Um, Also, you know, there's the other uh, problem with uh, carbon dioxide and fossil fuel burning, and that is that it's changing the chemistry. the ocean the co2 carbon dioxide is dissolving into the water creating a weak acid that is essentially changing the entire chemistry of the ocean and that shift is is really impairing the ability of things that have to produce a skeleton or a shell to to do the thing that lays down the skeleton of the shell, they, can't, they cannot calcify as effectively. So, um, you know, there is no doubt that it is tied to the massive quantities of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today.
0: Does bleaching normally occur during El Nino years?
1: Yes. And so, what happens see, during La Nina years? Yes, we sometimes see some some lags as well, and so bleaching can be associated with these major climatic conditions which we now know are more intense as a result of climate change. Um, so you set, essentially take something that will happen, you add on the effects of climate change, and it makes the higher temperatures higher than they've ever been before. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's, um, it's it's always a complex discussion because people say, well, it's, it's a natural phenomena with al-Nino. Yes, it's a natural phenomena, but it's a natural f- phenomena that is being influenced and intensified by climate change.
0: Uh, Jeff, you wanted to add, to add something?
2: Yeah, uh, it was a point that Ruth mentioned that I just wanted to emphasize because it was probably one of the biggest um, wake-ups for me in this process. Um When we talk about the climate changing and and trapping heat, uh, we usually think about the atmosphere changing and we think about air temperature. But Ruth had made a comment just there, over 90% of the energy from climate change that's being trapped by climate change is actually being absorbed into the ocean. And that's just how, those are the properties of physics. The water has higher thermal capacity, uh, a greater ability to retain heat. That's why a a humid environment stays warmer at night than a dry, arid environment, because the heat is retained in that moisture. And over 90% of that heat being trapped on the planet is being absorbed into the ocean and that's really where we're seeing so many of the changes now in terms of uh, in terms of changes on the planet in the ocean because of that heat
0: we uh, have some people calling in like to put them on the air Dan from New Jersey hi
2: hi there so I wanted to call in and ask uh, I forget who brought it up but the question the comment was about science communication and communicators and my question is we do have quite a lot of really excellent science communicators out there right now, like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, and then the list goes on and on. But it seems to me that the problem is people just don't care enough about it, uh, even though like, public polls say they do, when it comes to actually making change, they don't. Um, any thoughts? Um, that's a great question. And Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, they are um, two of a very short list of people that I think most people can name in terms of really famous, well-known science communicators. You've got Jane Goodall, you've got Sylvia Earle. Brian Greene. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a small list in, in the scheme of things. Um, why isn't that list much, much longer, right? Why aren't there as many celebrities in science as there are in, in Hollywood? Um, that would be something where, I th- you know, I think that would be something we could try to Strive for Not that it's ever going to hit those types of numbers, but my point there being, um, yes, there are a handful that are recognized well in small communities, but I don't think that the average person is, is necessarily seeking out all of that content.
0: Well, following that up a bit, uh, even those people are not talking about the what's happening to the coral reefs, uh, despite the fact that, as uh, you have suggested here, they play a very important role in the life of the planet. Uh, if the yeah. coral reefs disappear, uh, and right now, as you see, uh, we, we've uh, you, you pointed out that uh, 50% have disappeared in the last 30 years. What happens if the thing accelerates? What would that mean for the life of the oceans and the planet?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, it, it's absolutely um, horrific to think about a world without coral reefs. So coral reefs, as, as Jeff has already mentioned, are really fundamental to the food supply Coral reefs protect the land that they grow around. And when the, the reef in those places dies, the land literally gets eroded away by storm energy that goes into the land unchecked by the reef. And so what will start to happen is we will have less food And less place to live and the people who live in those places will have to move and they will have to move to a place where you live where they will compete for the resources that will become ever more limiting um, to you so we know what happens when people move around the planet it's a very complex societal problem the issue of refugees and so you know ecological refugees are will be intimately linked with the loss of the coral reef. There will be many more people moving to a place near you.
0: Doesn't Florida have the only barrier reef in the continental United States? How much of that reef has been lost?
1: You know, an, an enormous amount of the Caribbean reefs in general and Florida's reef have been lost and were lost in the 1980s um, due to bleaching and also uh, another huge problem that essentially wiped out the... The, the the thing that ate the plants that that were competing with the the coral reefs for space and so we lost a major herbivore in the Caribbean. Um, the, it was an urchin, and so the Caribbean had bleaching, had a huge disease episode that upset the ecological equilibrium, and then a series of really large storms. And um, you know, the Caribbean Basin in general is a fairly small space of water, and so it's like a basin, and so pollution um, is all a huge problem in in the Caribbean, which is not as, as big an issue because the Pacific itself is so much larger. This you know people always say the solution is dilution, but um, you know it's it's there are so many things that can affect the health of corals, and um, climate change is the one that we can essentially, or the warming of the ocean, we can really see these massive step down losses in reefs: eighteen percent in 1998, 20% in twenty percent in 2016. You know, you can only do that a few times before you have nothing left.
0: Let's take another call. Madeline from Brooklyn, you're on the air.
1: Hi. um, First, I want to say congratulations on a beautiful and informative film. I'm really glad people get to learn about this issue from it. Um, My question is for Dr. Gates about um, bleaching. Since it's not death um, and some corals come back from it, what is the process of that recovery? How do they manage to regain the symbiotic algae? Yes, so we think that there are two potential ways. One, they could potentially pick up algae that are in the water column. Um, that are are essentially available to them, but but perhaps more likely is that they have not lost all of their algae from their tissues, and when the conditions come back into the normal range, the algae that are left inside their tissues now start to divide and repopulate the entire animal. And so, you know, this is why we think it's extraordinarily important to optimise and get the temperature down to to get it down as quickly as possible, and also. You know, people are discussing the idea of shading reefs locally that are in really bad shape to try and really um, decrease the pressure on the system so that the algae can recover. So it's a great question. We don't really have an absolutely definitive answer. Um, It's one of those two things, and it varies among species.
0: Have we reached a tipping point? Can we save the coral reefs?
1: we are in a situation where I think we have to really reset our expectations. I think up until last year even we would have said, well, there was a possibility that protecting the reef um, it will be enough. That if we protect the reef and we mitigate fossil fuel burning and and reduce the pressure of climate change, that will be enough. I think at this point there's a lot of discussion, having lost 20% of the world's reefs last year, about should we be intervening and if we intervene, how would we do that? How can we help the reefs? How can we restore reefs in a sort of climate-savvy way to make sure that we have reefs in the future? Because, you know, we really don't want to go to a place where the only corals we see are in an aquarium.
0: Jeff, in your 2012 documentary, Chasing Ice, you used time-lapse photography to show how climate change is melting glaciers, uh, and then you did the same thing here. Um, how long uh, did these time lapses uh, uh, take to, uh, to show the, the reefs just being drained of color?
2: Yeah, I mean, with the case of chasing coral, in under two months, you watch healthy hmm. or stressed reefs turn completely white and then completely die. Um, so we're talking about a two-month time span of a thriving, beautiful ecosystem going from vibrant to completely dead. This this is what's far beyond anything that I anticipated or our team anticipated that we would would see.
0: Ruth, in the current issue of Smithsonian Magazine, there's a story about an Australian-based researcher who wants to genetically engineer the photosynthetic cells inside the coral to make them more resistant to heat. And uh, there was a July article in Popular Science that featured an Arizona based researcher who wants to design fiber reinforced polymer pipe to pump cold water to the bottom of the ocean onto the reefs. Do you see any of those as possible solutions?
1: Absolutely. I think we have to, you know, at this point, I think we have to explore everything and think about a portfolio approach of solutions. You know, we're we see, you know, basic scientists now moving into this realm of how do we intervene and how should we do it most effectively? My own program. We're moving into selective breeding and conditioning of corals that are optimized to survive climate change. I, I think you know, it's, it's, it's easy to think that there's one simple solution, but, and there is one simple solution ultimately, and that is the mitigation of climate change, the, the stopping of fossil fuel burning. But while we get there, we must have some tools in our toolbox. And I think genetic engineering or assisted evolution, we should look at all of it and be very thoughtful about how we move into that era Um, to avoid uh, or minimize unintended consequences. But the reality is, if we don't do something, we will lose
2: the world's reefs.
1: That is the reality.
2: In many ways, ways for me, this film is more than just about coral reefs. This is an indicator... Um, For many more changes that we're going to see if we don't address the carbon in the atmosphere.
0: And Jeff Dolowski is the director of Chasing Coral, which uh, can be seen on Netflix. Ruth Gates is the director of the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii at Manao. Thank you both so much for being on our show.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much.